Hello, everyone, and welcome to Geoversity's Earth Intelligence Podcast. I'm Don Shelby. My co-host for this episode is, as usual, Joseph Robertson, founder of Geoversity and director at Citizens Climate International. He is lead strategist for the Resilience Intel Climate Smart Finance Initiative and an expert on food security in a changing climate. Today, our episode might be entitled, Where's the Beef? Our guest is Todd Churchill, the principal of Churchill Reserve. While beef production is often cited as one of the causes of climate change, there is another side. Can beef be raised in a way that rebuilds the environment, that treats animals humanely and provides necessary protein in a moment when food insecurity is a growing global problem? Todd, welcome to Earth Intelligence. Well, thank you very much, Don. I'm a pleasure to be here. You are among the people in your line of work who has awakened to a way to repair the earth by going back to what might be called nature's genius. It wasn't until I was in my 30s and I was, ex- I was exposed to this whole idea that uh, cattle throughout all of history have, have rarely been fed any grain. And it was shocking to me to realize that when I don't feed grain to my cattle, they actually don't get sick. They don't need any antibiotics. They don't need any added hormones. They don't need anything else. They have a really strong immune system. I just have to manage them in a way that's optimal for what they're designed to do, which is to be outside eating forage. uh, That means green leaves off of a plant of some kind and moving. And that movement is essential. So uh, we think of the Great Plains of North America as this... uh, this uh, empty land that, w- that was just had all this grass growing on it and, and really rich black soil. But not many people have thought about how those, that soil got there. And we know now that that soil was created through a symbiotic relationship between the grass itself and the, the, the hundreds of millions of bison and other large ruminants that grazed it. And there weren't any fences those, those bison were going to go wherever the grass was the most abundant and the most nutritious. There's something almost magical about what happens biologically when you take grass plants and you put a herd of ruminant animals on them, a lot of animals, small space for a short time, and then you, you make sure that the animals can't get back to that grass again until it's fully regrown. We use a, temporary electric fences, and I can build a mile of fence with temporary posts and this wire in about a half hour. So I can build a, a new new area for my cattle to graze every day, and I can take that down and build a new one the next day. And I can use my cattle to not only convert grass into meat, I can use it to improve the quality of the soil, to improve the amount of carbon that's in the soil, to improve the cleanliness of the water, all by just managing the way that they graze. But Todd, it seems to me that it's very difficult to find a lot of grassland these days. How can you scale this? The folks that are doing the very best job at this is actually the National Audubon Society. Uh, Most people think of Audubon as uh, they run nature centers and they're very interested in, in songbirds, but they're also doing an outstanding job at identifying those ranchers that are that have existing grasslands and teaching them how to manage their cat, use their cattle as a tool to both create bird habitat and also increase the amount of gain that they put on their cattle. I've heard you say that you can judge the quality of nature by the number of birds you have on your property. 
Absolutely. The birds are the, we're going to develop over the next 10 years. Many people are working on this. We're going to have technology that will help us to understand which farming and ranching practices are doing the best job at sequestering carbon and at improving soil health and at raising nutritious food. But until we have those tools, birds are the very best natural indicator of overall environmental health because birds can go anywhere. And if a bird is where, if a bird is here, it's because here is better than any place else. Here has the, the habitat they need to build a nest, to find a mate and to raise young, and it has the food source that they need to thrive. So when I go on a ranch and there's a lot of birds, I know that they're doing a lot of things that are, that are good for the environment, and they're likely good for the, the financial results of that rancher. One of the other things that, that I continually try to clear up is that choosing the environment or choosing to be profitable is an either-or choice. And I've learned that that's not the case. I've learned that, that what's best for the environment, if you understand how to do it right, is also what's best for the financial returns for a farming or ranching operation. Are there particular enabling policies that need to be in place, incentives that help farmers and ranchers do better for nature and do better for business at the same time? Certainly. There's all kinds of things that we have put into place as a nation to stimulate more production of grain. We have many acres of grassland, millions of acres of grassland that are currently being used to grow crops that are probably not, that's probably not the best use of those acres. Um, but for the farmers and ranchers that operate those acres, they don't know of any. There, there are no market alternatives currently other than to grow crops on those acres. If there were, they would probably choose something different. And I have never met a farmer or rancher yet that is willing that is willingly degrading their environment. So you will never find me stigmatizing, casting blame on farmers who are uh, simply attempting to do as to do the best that they can. I, I believe every farmer and rancher is doing the best that they can. And what we simply need is more visibility and more education for some of these newer ideas. And admittedly, acceptance and adoption of new ideas in agriculture is not a... That's, <laughs> We're not on the cutting edge of very many things, really. But there's also value in looking to the future and saying, um, how, how can we produce more food of higher quality, and that means no, more nutrition per, per unit of measure, while we're improving our environment all at the same time? I come from farm country myself, but I will say that I believe that the vast majority of them who are chasing the rewards of the U.S. Farm Bill and turning up the land, putting it into grain crops, much of which is going to corn ethanol, that they're making a mistake because of the topsoil loss that is occurring. I only have the latest figures for Iowa. Five tons of topsoil per acre per year. And then they're completely sterilizing it with the ammonia hydroxides and the fertilizers, the pesticides that are hurting pollinators. There is damage being done. Totally so, agree. So I, totally I know agree. that they want to believe that they are doing the best they possibly can. Are they doing the best they possibly can for the earth? No, we need to separate out intention from the practices. There are thousands of farmers that are actively seeking out a better way to, to grow food. And they're learning how to do it without the chemicals. They're learning how to do it without the, mo the five modern industrial crutches of agriculture. Pesticides, herbicides, products we use that allow us to kill what wants to grow and keep alive what wants to die. 
And that's a pretty good definition of modern industrial farming is I'm a, I, have to, I wake up in the morning and I have to go out and try to keep alive what nature is trying to kill because nature doesn't like monocultures. And I have to try to kill all the things that, that want to grow. Those are the things that nature is trying to grow because, because nature doesn't like a monoculture. For me personally, that just doesn't sound like a fun life. I don't want to live my life. We all get to wake up in the morning. We're, we're very fortunate to live in the time in human history and the place that we live. We get to choose, to some degree, what problems we're going to solve. And every human being has to solve problems. That's what life is. I can't imagine it waking up in the morning and setting out to solve those two problems. How do I kill what wants to live and how do I, wanna, how do I keep alive what wants to die as a very compelling or exciting life? I'd much rather wake up in the morning as a rancher and say, how do I work with nature? How do I, how do I use what nature wants to grow for free? And how do I monetize that? I, have to, I, I can't stay in business if I can't figure out a way to work with nature and then sell whatever it is nature wants to grow for me. I've learned that nature wants to grow an incredibly diverse mix of plants. Nature doesn't want any bare dirt. And I've learned I can use cattle as a tool to harvest all of that naturally, uh, natural abundance that comes from photosynthesis. And I can do it. And, and if, I, if I eliminate the major industrial crutches for, in cattle production, which is antibiotics, added hormones, feedlots, and confinement operations, and, and I get the cattle to do the work, so I, they go out and they harvest their own food, I get a premium for that product. I get to sell that product to discerning customers who are asking for meat that was raised without a lot of those industrial systems. I get to work with nature. I don't have to spend, I've never spent any money on pesticides or herbicides or antibiotics or wormers or the other pharmaceutical interventions that we typically use because we're raising animals in, in such an abnormal way. All those problems that require all that intervention, they go away when, you, when the cattle are out on pasture being moved often, and they're eating grass that is getting more, more nourishing every time I graze it. If all of that is true, then it seems like the powerful story here is that the, the narrative of one health, that the health of animals, the health of nature, the health of people is really one integrated fabric that's starting- one system. Yeah. That's starting from there we then have a different idea of what efficient investments look like. Is it true that if we invest more in the kind of regenerative practices you're talking about, we're going to end up with healthier nature, healthier people, healthier animals, but that we're also going to have essentially a more robust, more diversified kind of economic landscape? Does that make sense in your experience? Could not agree more. You said it much better than I, or in much fewer words than I would have used. Yes. That's, a, that's exactly what I've learned that it's possible to create. But how we get there is, is challenging. It's very similar to the growth in, uh, in uh, renewable electricity. So 30 years ago, solar panels were incredibly expensive. They worked. They collected free solar energy and turned it into electricity that could be used to do work. But they were very expensive. They were very impractical. Now, the only thing that needed to happen the technology was there, but we needed scale. We needed to be able to produce them instead of in a factory that makes a, a one, one one watt panel a day to make 10,000 one watt panels a day. 
because there's efficiencies that are gained at that at that larger scale of production. But you can't just go out and build a factory to build a million solar panels a day when the demand is only for 10. So there's a there's a process of working really hard to stimulate demand and then working really hard to fill, fill that demand with supply and using the efficiencies that are gained by that additional supply chain scale to lower the cost to the market. And now you go back to the market and say, oh, look, I can, I can now deliver the same great solar panel for 10% less. And there's people that, that a year ago said, ah, solar panels are too expensive, but now it's 10% less. Now, now some of those people say, oh, you know, at that price, maybe I'll, maybe I'll look into this. And then you go do the same thing and it gets a little bigger. And the next year you come back and you can drop the price again. So the, the point isn't to create a boutique beef business that's selling incredibly expensive to raise beef to a small fraction of the buying public who really care about their health and who can afford that beef. The point is to com- come to the market with, with a product that's, that's got all these desirable attributes, 100% grass-fed, no antibiotics, certified by Audubon that it's bird-friendly, uh, no hormones, no feedlots, no, no confinement. Um, and at first, I've got to sell it to only, only to the people that can afford it because it is a more expensive product to produce. But the expense has nothing to do with the production system. The production system is actually cheaper than a feedlot. The expense has everything to do with the fact that I'm operating at a scale that no feedlot would attempt to operate at. But eventually, we do that back and forth. I go and I sell the beef to the marketplace, and the consumers say, wow, this is amazing. It's the best beef I've ever had. They tell their friends. And I say, oh, I'm out of beef. I'm going to go raise some more. I'm going to build. I'm going to get another couple thousand acres in this kind of production. And next year, I'm going to have twice as many cattle for the market. And I fill that market. And eventually, I get to a scale where I can start to disc to take the, the current premium price and discount it because I no longer need those premiums to compensate me for my inherent inefficiencies at operating at a small scale. Todd, there's one thing that we should talk about, and that is the negatives of, that some people will be feeling about this process, even though it has uh, grand designs, because they've seen the news and they've heard the stories that cattle are responsible for a great deal of the methane production that is forcing global climate change. How do you respond to that? Those are, those are great questions. And uh, the first place I start is I love talking to people who are thoughtful about how our food and our food systems of production impact the earth. So let's start with, I, I start by just being grateful that anybody cares. Because I'd much rather have a conversation with somebody who's sure that cattle are terrible than a conversation with somebody who has never thought about how their food was raised at all. The, the methane thing is an interesting, interesting dilemma. So one of, one of the conundrums of our modern focus and, and our incredible ability to use science to learn how things work, we, tip, we can oftentimes create a scientific experiment that delivers us accurate results, but our ability to interpret those results is deeply flawed. So if... If I take a cow that is normally would live on grass, and I, but I can't measure how much methane she – everybody knows that methane production is part of what happens in ruminant fermentation. So, But I, I can't – if she's just free roaming out in the pasture, I can't measure how much methane she produces. 
So in order to do an experiment, what do I do? I take her into a feedlot. I, I lock her in a little, a, a little tent, basically, and I have to collect the methane. But in, a, in every case, she's standing on concrete in that, in that example, and I'm probably feeding her grain. So I measure the methane, and I come to the conclusion that, wow, cows make a lot of methane. This is a, cows are a bad deal. They, uh, this is, this is, methane's a, a really powerful greenhouse gas. We got to get rid of all the cows. What I don't understand is that if that cow was on grass, the pasture that she was grazing that day, the soil bio, the soil is full of billions and billions of bacteria and fungi and other uh, microorganisms. Some of those bacteria actually eat methane and they digest it and they turn it into plant food. So as usual, nature has a system in place. If I take one piece out of that system and I put it in a lab and I measure it, I will, I will accurately measure the output of, of methane in this case, but I won't be able to comprehend how that methane exists as a positive thing in the overall system. That methane that that cow produces is actually a positive thing for the, the system of grazing plants and soil microbiology and cattle and the ruminant and the, the bacteria that live in their rumen. They work symbiotically. The, the cattle eat the grass, the grass goes into the stomach, the bacteria in the stomach convert the grass into meat and milk, and a byproduct of that production is methane. The methane comes out the back end of the cow or the front end if she burps, and that methane is, is converted by bacteria in the soil back into plant food that fertilizes the grass so that the next time that cow comes back to that same acre and eats the grass, the methane made more grass grow. She eats the grass, the grass converts in the rumen into meat and milk, there's some methane produced, and it's a cycle. In our, in our incredible intelligence as humans at breaking things down and reducing them to study them, we we so easily lose sight of the system where there's there's a reason why every part of that system exists. And that methane is not a bad thing at all. In fact, it's a really good thing, but not if that animal's on a concrete on concrete in a feedlot. Now we've broken the cycle. Now the methane from that animal absolutely is a problem. So it gets back to what one of my good friends and co-founders in, in our business, Blue Nest Beef, says. It's not the cow, it's the how. The cow is not the problem. The how we, we raise the cow, how we manage the cow, that's where the problems come from. And that the good news is that's really pretty easy to fix. These changes in management don't require any massive changes in infrastructure, uh, really much of anything except for a change in the way that we think. What I do is say, if there was a way to be in farming and ranching, and to make your soil health better, and to eliminate most of the checks you write every year for all of the products you have to buy to farm the way you farm. And consumers would pay you a premium for doing it that way. If, if, if all that was true, if that existed, was that something you'd like to, you'd be curious about? It's a much better way to start the conversation. There is a great deal of emotion behind how animals are raised and cared for. And I've been around a lot of feedlots. The cows' calves are taken away from them very early and turned into steer meat. But you allow the calves to stay with their mothers. Actually, after watching uh, some documentaries that you've been a part of, <laughs> the cattle 
look happy. We can create a lot of problems for ourselves if we don't work with nature. So all I do is I look at how, how does nature do this? If you look at a wild herd of bison in Yellowstone, nobody goes in and, and forcibly separates the, the cows and the calves. Nature takes care of that. Eventually, the cows stop giving milk. They naturally nurse off or wean off their calf, and then they have a little bit of a break before they have their next calf. There's a natural process for that. Um, for some reason, it's just, it's just, I guess, our human certainty that we're smarter than nature. We just want to go in and mess with everything because we're sure we can make it better. When it comes to policy incentives and all of that, the, the conversation starts maybe the way you say, but then doesn't it have to go to how's the soil ecology or how many birds are around? What do you know about the, the nature that you're working with? And you find out, well, I don't really know how to answer any of those questions. How would I start to answer those questions? Are those metrics part of the, even of the everyday conversation? Okay, I want to have healthier soil ecology, more biomass. How do I do that? Is that part of getting started? Yep. And we've got so many great organizations that are doing that kind of work. Uh, one of my co-founders in Blue Nest is, a, is also a partner in a group called Understanding Ag. They're the premier teacher of these regenerative ag practices to farmers and ranchers who are asking those kind of questions. We have uh, the National Audubon Society that's doing great work. They have 2 million acres of grassland that are now being managed for bird habitat. I buy some of those cattle to sell on, under our Blue Nest brand. All that information is at bluenestbeef.com. But there's, there's a lot of good work that's being done, and there are more and more farmers and ranchers every year that are asking those questions. What, what if it isn't actually this hard? I wonder, if I, could, I wonder what I could do to make changes that would make it easier for me to both be profitable and uh, be a good steward of, of what I have. Joe and I are both going to be part of the Global Freshwater Summit coming up. And the way you utilize the land and the way you care for the land, natural buffer zones, locking in soil carbons, uh, keeping biomass in place, that you're protecting waters along the way. And, and there's a powerful economic advantage to that. So when rain falls on my soil, because of the way that I've managed it, I can, I can get up to eight inches an hour of rain to go down into the soil. The average farm field can only absorb a quarter inch per hour. Well, we know with climate change, our rainfall patterns have changed. I may get the same number of inches of rain a year as I did 30 years ago, but it comes in fewer, more, more intense uh, rain incidents. So I'm more likely to exceed my soil's capacity for infiltration which means that that, that rain's going to run off. If I have bare soil, that water's going to wash my soil into the creek, which is ultimately going to end up in the Gulf of Mexico. But, but here's, here's the real problem. If, I, if 30 years ago I had a 30-inch rainfall and all 30 inches of that soaked into the ground, and now I have a 30-inch rainfall, but only 15 inches of it soak into the ground because the way that I, I, I manage my soil has made my soil less permeate, less permeous. I effectively have half as much. I'm in, I'm in a drought, even though I'm getting the, the meteorological records say I'm still getting the same amount of rain. That's why you see irrigation and pivots starting to be put in in, in, in east of the, the Missouri River where we never, had, we never needed irrigation before. It's not because the rain isn't falling. It's because the, the useful 
number of inches of rain is dropping because of the impact that our grazing and our farming practices have. If you're a farmer and you're you, it feels like you're not getting the same amount of rain as you used to, even though the records say you do. It's because of it's because your practices are in, unintentionally creating runoff. And if you fix that, not yes, of course, the water you clear up the water, you're not losing topsoil, but immediately you get the benefit of all those inches of rain that you used to lose. My goal is I don't want a drop of water to fall on my land that doesn't soak in. Because if it runs off, it is, it's of no use to me. And it's of no use to anybody else to raise food because it's now in the river and it's just going to end up, it's just going to keep going until it's in the Gulf of Mexico. Thank you, Todd, for being with us. We've learned an awful lot. And we hope that your uh, practices grow and catch hold with even more farmers so that we might somehow sustain the idea that nature's smarter than we are and we can benefit and make money while doing it. You uh, are doing well while doing good. And I thank you for what you're doing. And I'm glad you're being with us today. Thank you for having me. This is Geoversive Earth Intelligence. You can learn more at earthintel.org or if you want a deeper dive, you can go to geoversive.net. Thank you very much, and we'll check on you next week.